Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So in 1896, there was a short story uh, published in a London newspaper. It was by Max Beerbohm. Max Beerbohm. And the name of the story was The Happy Hypocrite. And this story was about uh, a rich man in London who was sort of living it up. This man was sort of going around, gallivanting around town, doing all of the things that a late 1800s rich man in London might be doing. And so as he was living this lavish lifestyle, one day he was attending a play. And a lovely young woman was a part of the troupe that this play was uh, c- consisted of. And Cupid's arrow struck this man. His name was Lord George Hell. And so Cupid's arrow struck him and he fell in love with this woman in the play. So he immediately began to ask around about her. And as he asked around about her, he found, found out that she said, I will only fall in love with somebody with the face of a saint. Well, this was a problem for Lord Hell uh, because he was aptly named. So what was he going to do? He was in love. Cupid's arrow had struck him. What was he going to do? Well, he went down to the mask store and had a wax mask of a saint made. And he put it on his face and then he approached this woman and she immediately fell in love with him. Immediately. And so they got married and his life was changed at that moment. In fact, on the, on the wedding license, when he went to write down his name, he wrote down his name as Lord George Heaven. And he began to undo all of the bad deeds he had done previously in his life and give money back to the people he had defrauded. And all of this looked like it was going to, to cruise off into a happily ever after until his ex showed up. And his ex said, I want to see your real face. And there was a tussle. There was an argument. Things went down. And eventually she pulls the mask off of Lord George's face. And something shocking happened at that point. He had been wearing the mask for so long that his face had started to form into the shape that the mask had given him. When she pulled it off, he no longer looked like Lord George Hell. At the beginning of the story, he looked like the mask of a saint. And so the ex was satisfied that this man was changed, the new wife, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, this story is a story that gets the name in the story, gets its name hypocrite, not from him doing one thing and believing another, but rather because that's what the mask was called. If you've ever seen the logo for a thespian society or an actor's guild, you will often see the two masks, one of them sort of exaggeratedly happy, one of them exaggeratedly sad. That's because those masks that were the ancient Greek masks that they would use in drama and comedies have become the symbol for acting. But in ancient Greece, to be a hypocrite was to be someone who wore a mask. That's what the original term meant. And that's what this story was playing off of. So so that's a little bit different than the way we use the word hypocrite though, right? You can see how they're connected, but they're not the same. To be a hypocrite to us means you're pretending to be something you're not. And in most cases, we use it around people who are religious hypocrites, someone whose public life and private life doesn't match up. 
Or maybe we could say it this way, Christians who portray faithfulness in some parts of their lives, but not others. I bring all this up because one of the most dangerous pitfalls that Christians can fall into is the temptation towards hypocrisy, to pretend that we're more engaged with Christ than we actually are. And this is actually something that's happening underneath all of our self-righteousness, underneath our pride. It's something deeper than both of those things because hypocrisy kills us slowly by cutting us off from the true change that can happen through the gospel. As Amos starts to conclude his preaching to the people of northern Israel, he's going to revisit a number of the themes that we've heard before. If you've been around this fall, as we've gone through the book of Amos, you're going to hear things that Amos has already said. He's going to talk about defrauding the poor, about cheating others. He's going to talk about justice and righteousness. But as he does here in Amos chapter 8, what we're going to see is how he also connects that to the religious hypocrisy of the people. And so if you are able, I would invite you to please stand as I read our passage for today. It's Amos chapter 8. You can follow along with in your Bibles if you have one, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come on my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The songs of the temple shall be wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Surely not the land, uh, surely... Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and being tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This is the portion of Amos where he is talking about a series of visions that he had. These visions began uh, uh, last chapter in chapter 7, and we're going to see another one next week in chapter 9. 
And this one begins, and Amos sees a basket of fruit, and God asks Amos what seemed to be a pretty obvious question. Amos, what do you see? And Amos says, that's a basket of fruit. I have seen many baskets of fruit in my life, and that is definitely one of them. And then God says, yes, Amos, you are correct. And that, what I mean by that is that the end has come. Now, what Amos says here and what Amos does here is something that is entirely lost on us because Amos is making a play on words in Hebrew. It would be kind of like this. Imagine God showed Amos a table set with with ice cream and and whipped cream and sprinkles and, and all the fixings for, you know, an ice cream sundae and said, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, ah, I see dessert. And then God says, yes, that's right. The people are going to the desert. That connection between dessert and desert that exists in English, they're two things that are very far apart. By the way, the mnemonic devices, uh, desert has one S because you only want one of them. And dessert has two S's because you probably want two of them. Just a little thing for you to keep in your pocket, you know, just in case you don't get confused. But that play on words is exactly what Amos does. The fruit of the basket is ripe and the time is ripe for judgment. This is a pretty bleak chapter in a lot of ways. I know as I read it out loud, uh, even some of your faces, you could sense that this chapter is dark. And one of the reasons for that is that Amos is not saying, turn around, turn around and maybe judgment won't happen. Amos is saying, nope, the seat is filled The note is signed, judgment is coming. Maybe there was a chance in the passages that he referenced earlier where if the people would have repented, God would have turned it around, but that's off the table now. And it seems that the last straw for this was the scene that we talked about last week where Amos was preaching and one of the priests, one of the priests of the land said to him, you've got to be quiet, go home, go away. We don't want to hear from you anymore. And so God isn't going to hold his hand back. He is sending judgment on them. The calamity that he has promised is now a certainty. Instead of singing songs of joy when they gather together, they're going to be wailing. They're going to be singing laments. In fact, in verse 3, at the end of the verse, you see the things that Amos says. This is what the lyrics of your songs are going to be like. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. That's some dark music. That's a dark song to sing. And the picture that Amos is painting for them is that the devastation that's coming to Israel is going to be utterly terrible. Not only are there going to be massive casualties, but the, the, the casualties are going to be so great that society as a whole is not going to be able to function. They're not even going to be able to bury their own dead. And so Amos wants them to understand why this is happening. He wants them to see what they have done. And so he points again out why God is so angry with them. They are trampling over the needy and poor of the land. They haven't acted with justice and righteousness. That's what he's been concerned with throughout his whole ministry. Amos is acutely concerned with how people treat those who have less money than themselves, how people treat those who have less power than themselves, how people treat those who have less agency. But he introduces a slightly new theme. So all of this about uh, caring about the poor, about trampling over the needy, we've heard before. But here in Amos 8, he adds their religious hypocrisy to it. They can't wait for the new moon and the Sabbath to be over so they can get back to their crooked ways. That's what verse 5 says. Now think about that. 
These are people who are, it goes on to describe, they're, they're making their packages smaller and not telling people. You know, they're doing the Doritos chip bag thing. You know, there's a guy getting interviewed for Doritos and there's a glass of water that was halfway filled. And uh, the Doritos bag uh, interviewer asked him, oh, is the glass full, half full or half empty? And the guy interviewing to be a part of Doritos said, that's full. That's completely full. You're hired. We got you. This is kind of a little bit what's happening here. They, they are using fake weights. They are using uh, bad scales. They're using people to get more and more money. But all of this abuse of the poor, they stop on the Sabbath. All of this taking advantage of others, they don't do on religious festival days. It is absolute hypocrisy. Um, this week, I got to see a little bit of this in action. Uh, my son's high school had uh, school off on Tuesday. Uh, and since Tuesday was my day off, I decided, oh, why don't I take you and some of your friends to Bush Gardens? And as we were going through Bush Gardens, it was a little bit afternoon. We were starting to get hungry. We turn a corner and there is a Chick-fil-A at Bush Gardens. So I sort of peeked my head into the Chick-fil-A to kind of see what the situation was. And it looks just like a normal Chick-fil-A. And I looked up at the board to see the prices. And a number one cost $10. And I thought, well, you know what? That's not bad. That's a little inflated. You know, that's not what you pay for Chick-fil-A at the Chick-fil-A on 4th Street. But, you know, you're at a theme park. So I walk in and we begin to order. And as we begin to order, we find out that at a Busch Gardens Chick-fil-A, a number one it's just a sandwich. If you want fries, that's going to be another $7. Oh, and if you want a drink that's not soda, like you want the good Chick-fil-A sweet tea, oh, that'll be another $5. Throw some tax in there, and you're talking about almost $25 for a Chick-fil-A meal. But you can't do that on Sunday. Chick-fil-A will take your $25 at Bush Gardens for your meal but they won't open on Sunday. Yes, that is a, a menial example of that sort of hypocrisy of taking advantage of others and then observing the Sabbath. But I think it gets us to the truth. I think it gets us where we're going. The people of Israel were lying and cheating to make money at the expense of others. And nevertheless, they were scrupulous. They were particular to keep the Sabbath. And that's what hypocrisy is. We have to be thoughtful about it in our own lives. The question that we ought to be curious about with our own hearts is, where are my private actions and my public persona misaligned? Where am I hiding my sin under the mask of religion? And let me be honest with you, the more involved you are with Christianity, the more involved you are with church, the more of this is a temptation for you. The more you attend or serve, the more this misalignment can be a danger. So maybe ask yourself some questions like these. Does your search history line up with the self that you present to others on Sunday morning? Does the way that you parent when other people are at your house for small group change from the way that you parent the rest of the week? What is there that no one else knows about you that you are deathly afraid someone is going to find out? We all have these things. We all have things come to mind in this moment. And what hypocrisy teaches us to do is hide from these things and hide these things 
by doubling down on the religious things that we do. If we teach a Bible study, maybe somebody, maybe nobody will notice everything else in my life. I should volunteer more so I don't have to think about the mismatch that I have going in my life. Hypocrisy allows us to hide even from ourselves. It makes us think that we can outwit our shame. But when we keep putting that mask on, when we keep putting the mask of fake religious duty on, it starts to shape our face. Just like Lord Heaven in the story of the happy hypocrite was molded by the mask that he wore day in and day out, hypocrisy disfigures our soul. Beloved, the way out of this pit is not to do more good things. You can't work your way out of hypocrisy. That's not how it works. The way out is taking off the mask, is being honest about who we are, being honest about what we are struggling with. Maybe that unmasking is something that you, you need to talk to somebody about. You can talk to your elders, talk to your small group leaders, talk to the staff. But believing, we need to believe that no matter what our guilt is, Jesus' love for us is still there and is still the cure for hypocrisy. Um, Richard Sibbs put it this way, and I thought this was a beautiful way of putting it. There is more grace and mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. There is more grace and mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. And so Amos shows the people that this judgment is coming. And then he concludes by telling them, giving them details of what exactly this judgment is going to be. And again, he picks up on themes, just like he has picked up on themes as he showed them why judgment was coming. He continues those same themes on what the judgment is going to be. If you remember, he's referenced Egypt several times, and he does that again now. The land is going to rise and fall like the Nile. There's going to be upheaval in creation itself. That's why he says the, the moon and sun are going to be dark at noon. Their feasts are going to become wakes. But Amos, again, adds a new wrinkle here that he hasn't mentioned up to this point in the book. God is going to send famine and drought but not famine of food or drought of water. The famine and drought are of God's word among the people. The people and the religious leaders have told Amos to be silent, to stop saying what God has said. So in a way, God's going to give the people of Israel what they're asking for. They have said they don't want to hear this prophet who is telling them that it's not okay to trample the needy, to trample the poor. They want, they want him to stop talking and God says, okay, I will be silent, but I'm not just going to be silent about judgment. I'm going to be silent about everything. And this culminates in, in some really sad and bitter irony in verse 14. If you read it, there's uh, three phrases in verse 14 that seem strange, right? The guilt of Samaria, the God of Dan, and the way of Beersheba. And if you were reading along, you might have noticed that those are capitalized in strange ways. And so what's going on there? Well, these are the three places that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel had put up uh, fake images of Yahweh. If you guys remember, the second commandment says that you should make no other images of God. Well, the people of Israel had a habit of breaking that commandment. 
In fact, as God was writing that commandment down and Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, I don't know, let's make a golden calf. Seems like a good idea to represent God, and then we'll just worship that calf. Well, that did not end well. Did not go well for the people of Israel. But you know what they did? When they got into the land, they kept going, you know, all of our friends who worship Baal and Asherah, they, they have a thing that they can look at and worship, and we don't have a thing. We should have a thing. You know what? Let's make another golden calf. That worked out fine last time. Let's, let's just run it back. Let's do it again. And so they seem to have put three of these in the three places that he has mentioned. And here's the irony. These images were supposed to be God. They were supposedly images of Yahweh himself, but they can't speak. They can't move. They're mute and dumb idols. And God says, if that's what you think I am, that's what I will be to you. God says that he's going to stop speaking to them. The silence of God is a terrible judgment, but the punishment is fitting for the crime of the people in Amos' day. Just like God wanted the people of Israel to show justice and righteousness, God is a God of justice and righteousness. Now that may seem harsh. You may hear that and go, Ugh, I don't know if I like that. But think about if you've ever been on the side where injustice has happened to you, where you have been abused, you have been oppressed, you have been on that side of things. Having a God who will set all things, all things right through his perfect justice really is good news. And in this case, God is going to send a famine of the bread of God's word and a drought of the water of God's spirit. Now, if, you, if you're anything like me, and you struggle with hypocrisy. If your external life and your internal life don't add up, we might hear this and be quite alarmed. We may find ourselves in the place of Israel and Amos, but it's not the end of the story. The good news is that this is not the end of the story. If we are willing to name our sins and repent of our hypocrisy, Jesus ready stands to receive us and not only receive us, but feed us. Remember John uh, 635, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. Because there is more grace and mercy in him than sin is in us, we can be honest. Because his death on the cross fully paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, we don't have to hide and we don't have to wear a mask. If you're from the 90s, you don't have to fake the funk on a nasty dunk. We have to stop pretending to be something that we're not. And the gospel frees us to do that. And each week, when, whenever uh, one of the women who give announcements tells us about City Church, reminds us the three pillars of who we are at City Church, they say that we're a church that is built around community. And community that is rooted in the gospel comes from us being able to take off our masks around one another. It comes from us being willing to let our guard down, to drop our water level. Let people know where we're struggling. 
Let people know where we don't have it together. Just not saying, oh yeah, I don't have it together and, you know, generalized, you know, I do, I do things that aren't great and, you know, no, no. But be genuine with one another. Really, truly take off our masks, which can be terrifying. It can be absolutely terrifying because our Hippocratic, uh, Hippocratic, <laughs> our masks of hypocrisy feel safe, but it is a false safety. It's false safety. Jesus ready stands to embrace us, but he wants us to come to him without the mask of a hypocrite. May we all find the grace to lay down our masks and find the bread of life to be satisfying and unifying and renewing us once again. Let's pray.